Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Good afternoon. Welcome back to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. I'm Dr. Rob Dixon sitting in for Casey today, and today we've got a special treat for you. We're going to do a COVID worldwide uh, cast, and we've got a couple special guests. We've got Professor Colin Graham, and Colin's a professor of emergency medicine at the Chinese University in Hong Kong and a faculty member at the Prince of Wales Teaching Hospital in Hong Kong. Good morning, Colin. Good morning, Rob. Nice to see you. Very nice to see you. Thanks so much. We know it's it's in the afternoon here in Houston, Texas, late afternoon, early evening, and it's early in the morning. So we appreciate Dr. Graham and, and our next guest, Dr. Alistair Meyer from Melbourne, Australia, uh, getting up early to join us for this cast. So Dr. Meyer's associate professor at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and the director of the Casey Emergency Department in Melbourne, Australia. Good morning, Dr. Meyer. G'day, Rob, and g'day, Colin. Lovely to see you both. We're on a Zoom at the moment. It's great to, to see your faces. Yeah, we're socially distancing like 8,000 miles, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, but it's terrific. And I, I appreciate uh, Professor Graham getting up a couple of hours earlier than the rest of us. <laughs> I'm impressed that both of you guys, Alistair has made rounds this morning with the registrars, and you're both in your offices. I'm looking at them in their Zoom. I'm like, my gosh, these guys are dedicated. <laughs> so can we start off uh, just individually, uh, each of you, and we can start with you, uh, Al. Give us a little background about your healthcare system there in Melbourne. What kind of patients do you see? A little bit about the density and specifically touch on what your relationship with EMS, both air and ground services are. And then I'll kick the same thing to you, Colin, so the listeners can kind of get a feel of what your world is like that you you operate in. Okay, uh, thanks Rob. Um, Australia has a free healthcare service um, right across the board. So every citizen and uh, permanent resident is entitled to free and comprehensive healthcare um, from the family GP, family doctor, right through to tertiary level care. Um, it's, it's a state-based system and Melbourne is the capital city of the state of Victoria and Melbourne is a huge metropolis. It's about 120 kilometres by 120 kilometres with a big bay in the middle. Um, and uh, I've learnt the population uh, is bigger than what I used to quote. So COVID has given me more understanding of our population data. So we're at 6.6 million people across uh, the city of Melbourne and the suburbs. My hospital is in the southeast of Melbourne suburbs, so I'm about 70 kilometres from the central business district, from the what you'd probably call the downtown area. And we serve a large population of about three quarters of a million people in suburban Melbourne. So these are um, pa- uh, most patients that we see uh, mortgage holders of a suburban family home. Um, and uh, the healthcare network I work in is called Monash Health, and we're a government-run uh, health network, and there are three major hospitals and probably about half a dozen smaller hospitals and nursing homes in our network, and I'm, as you, as you introduced, the director of one of those three hospitals emergency departments. Um, in Australia, most states have a state-run and state-funded 
EMS or ambulance, ambulance service and Victoria is similar. So our, as you would call it EMS, our ambulance service is called Ambulance Victoria. Uh, it's a state-based centralised uh, uh, organisation um, with a, um, uh, two levels of crews. There's one level called a MICA, Mobile Intensive Care Ambulance, which has two uh, higher trained paramedics. And there's a second level of um, service, which has uh, lower trained, but there's still paramedic trained uh, officers in their cars. There's probably a third tier as well, which is a um, subcontracted private ambulance service that mainly does inter-hospital transfers. And we utilise that a little bit as well to get from our hospital, which is an urban general, into our tertiary centre. And again, the ambulance service is um, a free service. Uh, everybody's entitled to it. Um, and uh, I think that probably answers all your questions, doesn't sure. it? Sure. No, um, great synopsis. Um, yeah. Colin, we'll shift to you. Tell us a little bit about where you practice in Hong Kong. Sure. Thanks, Rob. And thanks very much for the chance to, to put a little bit into this. Uh, so I'm obviously not originally from Hong Kong. I come from Scotland, but I've been in Hong Kong for 17 years now. I came for a year and it's been the longest year of my life so far. But um, I work in a place called Sha Tin, which is in the new territories of Hong Kong. Hong Kong in general has seven and a half million people in an area about 40 miles by 40 miles. So we have, without doubt, the highest population density of any city on planet Earth. Um, the, the district of Mong Kok, which many of you will have heard of if you haven't visited, has the highest population per square kilometer on the planet. So we, we're typified by very high density flats, um, predominantly, almost no one in Hong Kong owns a house. It's all high rise flats. Typical kind of living space is about 300 to 400 square feet for a family of four or five. And multi-generational living is very, very common. It's almost ubiquitous. The health service. So we, we have uh, 17 emergency departments in the main part of Hong Kong, one more out on the one of the outlying islands, which is very small. But uh, overall, roughly half the population of Hong Kong will visit the emergency department sometime during the year. So typically about 3 million attendances a year over the 17 departments. My own department sees about 400 patients a day um, and we are not that busy. We're about fourth or fifth busiest. The busiest department sees 600, 650 a day, every day. Um, so yeah, it keeps us out of trouble, keeps us busy. Um, the mix is quite uh, interesting, quite different to some places. Typical few percent who are critically ill when they arrive and um, about 30% come by EMS, roughly 30% get admitted. So we're looking at 120 acute admissions every day in my own centre. And um, a reasonably high volume of primary care because our primary care service is not well developed. Um, certainly not in terms of family medicine or longitudinal patient care. So we, we've seen big changes with COVID. I'll maybe come on to that later. But um, in terms of the EMS service, uh, similar to what Al's described, it's a government funded service through the fire services department 
they do 99% of all the patient uh, response and emergency work. Um, trained to paramedic level in the sense that they will use adjuncts like LMAs and occasionally IV fluids and IVs. But one of the really important things to remember about Hong Kong is it's so small. The response time from scene to hospital is often not more than 15 to 20 minutes. So doing things like intubations and, and you know, protracted entrapments and things is extremely uncommon and, and to be honest, unnecessary because our times are so short. So we've concentrated more on things like uh, basic airway, LMA um, and transfer quickly rather than um, protracted scene interventions because you can be in a hospital most of the time within 15 minutes. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I think much different. I mean, our areas are much, much different. In Montgomery County here, we have 1,100 square miles with 750,000 people. So yes. much longer transport times, a, a much greater effect, I think, of the ALS component in interventions Absolutely. versus a, yes. a, a compacted inner city. So let's stay with you for a second, Colin. I know that you started off in Hong Kong about the time of the the initial SARS outbreak, can you just take us a, a walk back historically on what that was like then in Hong Kong and what you guys learned and how you've translated that to the current uh, situation we find ourselves in? You guys are right in the middle. It's winter in uh, in Asia and and, and Austra- or in Australia. It is, uh, yeah, and no, they're in the flu season. The summer still. Yeah, we're still in summer. So yeah, I mean, so I, I first visited Hong Kong in late 2002 to look at this job. And um, just as we were, my wife and I were leaving and going back to the UK, just when there were initial reports coming of a new bug in southern China that was causing pneumonia. And, you know, like most of us at that time, we thought, well, you know, it's, it's another avian flu, because that was the common thing in the late 90s, early 2000s. Anyway, Within a few months, it had become very clear that this was a very new bug, which eventually was called SARS. It was the SARS-CoV-1. And it really took hold in Hong Kong in the February of 2003, and it lasted through till June of 2003. So of note, uh, just to give you the quick summary, the big issue then was no one was prepared, no one had any plans, no one knew what we were dealing with. Uh, and I was back in Scotland at this point, and uh, but getting updates from my colleagues and friends here pretty much daily. And the essence was in total Hong Kong saw 1,750 cases, 300 deaths, and a significant number of those deaths were medical, nursing, healthcare professionals, because we just didn't understand transmission routes, protection uh, options. PPE was a new concept. In fact, my my center, particularly the intensivists in my center, um, put together most of the protocols that we still now use for um, personal protection. And, and uh, 17 medical students in our medical school got infected as well because at one point there were so many people needing ventilation they were being bagged using um, ambu bags on the wards you know and again we had no filters in those days we didn't know what we were doing so the 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 cross contamination and the morbidity was horrendous what did we learn from that well in essence I, i arrived in hong kong a year after that in 2004 and we were in the process of re, um, 
for redesigning for a new department, which is the department we're currently in. I think our biggest step was to make it two to three times bigger in terms of floor space, because we needed uh, some degree of separation for the volumes we were seeing. That was number one. I think the second thing is we got much, much, much better at PPE and about hand washing, hand hygiene, that, all that kind of stuff. And I think the final thing we did structurally, which I would commend to anyone, is we got to the stage where we decided to have negative pressure rooms in the ED, negative pressure resuscitation areas, and each ward, with one exception, all got a negative pressure room or two. And we had two wards, in fact, it's now three, that were dedicated negative pressure rooms that are used for all the high-risk infectious disease. And that's proven to be an incredibly worthwhile investment because, um, you know, since then we've had swine flu, we've had a couple of outbreaks of avian flu, we've had MERS in 2015 as well, although we didn't have many cases of that. And now, obviously, we have this. And I think it's a tribute to all of my colleagues in the hospital authority that despite having now more than 4,000 cases and 60 odd deaths, 58 deaths, I think it was yesterday in total, that's been the total for six months, seven months of an outbreak. And no one so far in the hospital authority has been infected at work with um, the new coronavirus because our PPE and our um, you know, hand hygiene is at a very good level. So I think that's a tribute to people's skills and, and commitment, and, and I commend them enormously for that. We're not out of the woods yet. It's going to be another months to years. But I think it's amazing that we've got this far, given what we went through back in 2003. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, when we did the first uh, coronavirus update, or this is kind of the second one, which is episode 70, we talked about some of the research that we looked at, and it was research that came out of Hong Kong and China that essentially wasn't, no, no research is perfect, but it said, listen, if you do these PPE steps, if you wear your PPE properly, you're going to essentially reduce the risk, never to zero, but close to zero. And that's exactly what we've seen uh, from our experience here is that we do see employees that have become uh, infected, but it is generally not from a work source. Yes. It's from yes. the family because now okay. it's endemic in the community. So uh, thanks for that. Let's pivot to Al and talk about what's going on in Melbourne. It, it is the winter. I, I got my Southern hemispheres mixed up. It is the winter there, so it's a double whammy. It's what, you know, Colin, we were talking about earlier. That's what we're worried here in Houston, right? It's the misery mm. season. And as you well know, in Hong Kong, it's it's quite hot and humid. But Labor Day, which is the official end of, of summer here, is right around the corner. So we're having a holiday with the beginning of the flu season. So we're quite worried to see what's happening uh, in the Southern hemisphere and how that might affect us here. Well, I guess, Rob, um, our winters aren't that severe in Melbourne. It's um, probably a, a climate, um, I, I guess, what's our cold? Today was probably about four or five degrees Celsius this morning when I left home, and it'll get up to the mid-teens, I, I guess, today. Um, and humidity's more or less nothing to speak of. Um, quite nice sunny days, but very, but, well, we think very cold. 
Um, and you, you just mentioned flu then. We've had very little influenza um, and uh, uh, there's been a little bit of rhinovirus around and a little bit of adenovirus around um, in the school kid age groups and their parents. But, but our flu season is next to nothing. Um, of course, it's been superseded by our friend coronavirus. Um, and yes, Melbourne in particular within Australia is going through, well, some people call it a second peak. It might even be the first peak. Um, and uh, we're actually having uh, a pretty torrid time at the moment with this second peak of or second wave of coronavirus. So I've just got up on my other screen. I'm just looking across that um, uh, in Victoria so far since, uh, well, I think it's since the start of the year, but really our, fir our first case was reported, first case in Australia actually was into Monash Health on um, the 26th of January, and then we had nothing for a while, but then late March, early April, we had what was the first peak. Um, and now we're up to a second wave and we're seeing within the city of Melbourne about 400 cases a day for the last three to four weeks. Um, and in total, there's 15,000 confirmed cases in the state of Victoria, most of them in Melbourne, uh, and 246 deaths. So today's numbers aren't out just yet. I'll just click through my screens just to make sure. But um, uh, uh, the original wave was all return travellers. So people used, came into to Melbourne from all over the world um, and that's what brought coronavirus into Australia. Um, and the governments in each state had a grand plan of putting people into the what were now empty city hotels. All the big tourist hotels in the city were um, turned into quarantine stations or quarantine hotels, they were called. And we unfortunately think that and understand, and of course there's a, an inquiry going on uh, this week in Melbourne as to exactly what went wrong, but something went wrong in the quarantine hotels and people who had the disease were let out or shared it amongst the security guards, or there's, there's uh, a lot of allegations uh, around in the lay press at the moment, but there was a breach of security within these hotels and the virus has escaped again. Um, and it initially escaped to some abattoirs, some meat uh, packing industries. Um, and then from there, it sort of leapt into the aged care communities. And we now have so two weeks ago, there were two um, aged care uh, facilities within my catchment area that had uh, the disease. And today, I just checked this morning before we came on together, there's 19 aged care facilities that have got the disease. And um, so there's, there's many theories on how it's rapidly spread through the aged care facilities. And and one of them is that it's a the, the staff that work in such facilities actually um, are fairly itinerant, well not itinerant, they're casualised workforce. So they might work two or three days at one facility, two or three days at another facility and so on. And they've, they've taken the disease from site to site. Um, and that's, that's created a, a, a part of this second surge. So it's sort of threefold, the meat industry the aged care facilities and, um, as I alluded to, a breach that's um, 
under pretty serious investigation in the, the hotel quarantine. Um, <clears throat> but like you described, Rob, we um, went pretty hard pretty early with um, PPE equipment for our staff. And um, certainly in my department, we've had no transmission to staff members. I've had two staff members with the disease. One's brought it back from a conference in New York back in um, very early March and uh, before our travel restrictions uh, were put in place. And I've had another staff member who we believe caught it from her family connections, um, not, not from work. Um, and and it um, certainly is a, a worrying time for our staff and I'm sure your staff as well and paramedics have. Uh, what, what's our community done uh, to mitigate this? Way back in March, um, we went hard and went early with uh, um, social restrictions and they, they were eased a little bit through June and throughout the rest of the country they are still remaining eased but in Melbourne particularly in mid-July and about a fortnight ago, um, uh, which is two weeks for our uh, US viewers, um, so about a fortnight ago um, the social restrictions were turned back on and no retail premises are allowed to be opened except for supermarkets, petrol stations and pharmacies. Schools are all closed down and I know this from uh, both ends of the scale. I have one son who's a school teacher and two sons who are in their early years of school and it's difficult for both of them, both groups of people, but schools are all closed down and it's all gone to an online teaching. Um, socially people must wear a mask if they're outside their own home that's everybody right across the board i think there's a cutoff at 12 years of age because of the difficulties with children wearing masks but indeed i have eight six and four year old children and they all wear a mask as soon as they leave the house and are very good with it um we don't leave the house very much because there's also now a curfew in the city of melbourne so you've got 6.6 .6 million people under curfew control 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. at night you, the only reason you're allowed out of home is uh, for essential work and there are police checks all over the city um, and exercising uh, uh, we now have a, um, a, a very strict rule that you're not allowed more than five kilometers from your front door um, and actually there's quite a, an interesting fad or fashion amongst cyclists and you guys know that I, I ride and do 100 kilometres before the sun comes up but um, uh, I can't do that anymore except if I go five kilometres one way and turn around and come five kilometres back the other way um, and that gets fairly mundane after a while but um, there is, there's a fad where people have got apps that um, alarm on their telephones and they try to go up and down every street within the 5k radius from their, their front door. It's, it's um, probably a little bit of fun to have with it but they're quite strict restrictions that see our numbers slowly drift back down again we were peaking at about seven I think it was mid 700s a day for a few days uh, last week and we're drifting down to 300 cases across the city um, 331 was yesterday so today's numbers haven't come out yet this morning but there are um, very strict um, social restrictions. You asked also about our university students, our medical students. Um, 
it's actually our teaching day today, Wednesday. I'll move from, from this recording with you to to go into teaching our registrars. And our registrars, which you would call your residents in emergency medicine, are, are um, across three big sites in the southeast of Melbourne. And we actually get together on uh, Zoom or WebEx or a similar platform for our face-to-face -face teaching, but it's all virtual. Um, and we actually get a better attendance and uh, we think a better result because everybody can turn up. There's no excuses. Even the guy who was on night shift last night will roll over in bed and, and have an alarm go off and join our teaching and then roll back over and, and finish his night's sleep rather than having to get up and, and drive to one of the three hospitals where we would ordinarily have the, the tutorials and, and lectures. Um, so we, we actually think it's, it's better attendance. I don't think it's better teaching, but it's better attendance. And um, our final year medicine students um, are still attending their clinical placements. Um, the, the lower years aren't, but final year medicine is definitely attending. Within the department, you asked a bit about clinical practices, nebulizers, non-invasive ventilation, um, another airway management um, issues that we've had and these, this is um, we went again early back in March and stopped all those procedures unless it was done in our um, negative pressure room with full PPE or and we have levels of PPE we call it tier 3 PPE which is essentially um, eye protection N95 face cream face screens or visors um, and water impervious droplet protection gowns, double gloved. So we went very early with a known nebulizer. Um, the only caveat for that was children with croup and nebulized adrenaline. Um, but we went very early, one of the earliest um, hospitals in, in Melbourne actually to, to change practice. Um, and we maintained that. And the ambulance service is pretty much the same. They will. Um, not do certain airway procedures that were once um, very commonplace. Yeah, it's like they took all the arrows out of my quiver uh, for mm. my EMS service. I mean, we we really did a lot of non-invasive support for our patients, and it was a yeah. big culture change. We've uh, we'll get Colin away, and we've taken it out of our algorithm and have a stepwise algorithm. Uh, that we will talk we talked about in another podcast in 75 and 76 uh, approach to the COVID airway but essentially removed non-invasive and quite frankly we haven't seen any bad outcomes from it so it's worked well, pretty well for us yeah we're not getting we're not getting the oldies with airways disease with the flu or with rhinovirus or adenovirus so we're not getting the need it's because of the measures to try and lock down coronavirus we're not getting the viral infective exacerbations of airways disease and the like and so we're not we don't really have the need it, it appears yeah I, I know if colin's got the same sort of story yeah yeah so i mean and um to go back to the social measures first i mean in the whole call we shut things down very early um we we were alerted to this on the the last day of 2019 from and obviously with our proximity to Wuhan and our previous outbreaks we were very twitchy I was on call and we had some um, very early response meetings about it but our first case came just at the time of the Lunar New Year which is a huge holiday in Hong Kong and China 
And I remember on the first day of the new year, sitting with all of my um, all of my senior colleagues in the infection control teams um, across the hospital, trying to have some strategic directions on where we go with this. So we, we got on to it very quickly. Um, socially, the schools and the universities all shut down very early. We switched over to virtual teaching. That seemed to work for the most part. Um, things did loosen off a bit in the May and June when the, the numbers remained fairly static and the schools went back for a little while. That was also when our final year students came back and we did some teaching with them. But we've shut that down again uh, late June, early July. And since then, because of our uh, resurgence in our third wave, as we are calling it, where our numbers went up to 140, 130, 140 a day, we're now coming out of that slowly. Um, in terms of social, uh, other social things, I mean, Hong Kong was a very early adopter of masks. Many people wore masks anyway. Um, but that became universal right at the get-go. Uh, hand hygiene was important. We, recently, we've been working from home, and that was the case at the beginning of the outbreak as well. Anyone who doesn't need to be at home, who doesn't need to be at work, should be at home, and that's basically how it's been done. Public transport um, uh, is, is by far the commonest mode of transport in Hong Kong. Only 10% of people have a car, which is a huge change from um, metropolitan US cities and Australian cities. And uh, But even then, the density of passengers on the public transport has dropped like a stone in the last month when uh, more restrictions have been put in place, which is good. In terms of restaurants, it's been interesting. We, we've had a, a, a bit of an up and a down with that recently. So the government... Um, introduced uh, a ban on evening meals about a month ago so from 6 p.m onwards you couldn't sit down in a restaurant and eat now that in itself doesn't sound too bad except for the fact that hong kong flats are so small many of them don't have a kitchen so you um most of the population is reliant on getting food outside in the evenings to be able to feed themselves and their families so takeaways are still allowed but um, many restaurants have actually shut down or restricted their hours because of the economic impact of not having sit-in um, customers. And then for a few days, a couple of weeks ago, the government in their infinite wisdom decided they would actually close down the restaurants completely, except for takeaway. And what that led to was a situation for a couple of days where all the construction workers and all the, um, the, the people who were actually out there working were literally sitting in the streets, sitting in public toilets, sitting in parks, eating their lunch because there was nowhere to go and sit. And this caused an outcry because, you know, it, people who have to work have to eat. And, and it was clear that these, particularly the poorer end of the population, were being um, unfairly disadvantaged by this. And we, we kind of thought generally, surely it's better to have a restriction on the number of people who can be sitting in a restaurant, but you can actually check their temperature and see if they have symptoms in that setting rather than just giving them food to then go and sit in a park with their friends with no social distancing and no masks on. So that got reversed after 40 hours and we've gone back to a situation where the restaurants are open during the day, but 
you can only have two people at a table and you have to have a mask on except when you're shoveling food into your mouth. Um, and so far that seems to have been okay. Right, and those um, are very similar to, to what we're doing here in, in Houston and uh, the restaurants are open, there's more social distancing and there is yes. a, a mask rule, which yeah. I, is, is new for so us. That's, that's worked out okay. The final year student issue is a big thing. We, we've had no final year face-to-face contact at all um, for about five weeks now. And we, we think that's a huge issue because the longer this goes on, the less clinical exposure these um, young trainees are going to get. And we don't want them qualifying and being out there if they've never laid hands on a patient in anger for months. I think Hong Kong was scarred by the fact that 17 medical students were infected by SARS first time around 17 years ago. But there's there's a there's a worrying concern from both the hospital authority and senior people in both universities with medical faculties that we should not expose our students to any risk. Many of us who actually see patients and work in, in what you might call the front line, you know, feel quite strongly that when you sign up for this job, you sign up knowing that there is a small but very definite risk. and. The bottom line is you need to accept that even as a trainee as much as um, when you're a qualified physician and you know we all know albeit it's unlikely that we've had colleagues who have you know acquired tuberculosis and other nasty infections during our time as trainees and as junior doctors it's unpleasant and it's uncommon but it does happen and um, we try and mitigate as best we can, but risk cannot be completely avoided. And I think this is something we're gonna have to address more formally as we go on, because this will be the new norm. The, the coronavirus is not gonna magically disappear one day and, and you know, leave us alone. Finally, about the clinical protocols, we gave up nebulizers fairly early. In fact, we gave up nebulizers in 2003. Um, we haven't used the it, we haven't used the nebulizer at all since SARS, um, with the one exception being nebulized adrenaline, as Al mentioned a minute ago. But if we use that, the patient's in a negative pressure room in full PPE um, for the staff accompanying them. Non-invasive ventilation, we've been very very restrictive with it for the same reasons. We watched the experience in Italy and France, and we didn't see any good things coming out of it although some good results have been reported especially with things like helmet CPAP it struck us that having 20 people in a ward all getting helmet CPAP was probably not good for infection control if you didn't have COVID at the time you started you certainly would have it after about 10 minutes with the amount of virus flying around so we've <clears throat> had a policy of early transition to invasive ventilation with um, tracheal intubation and all of our tracheal intubations are done by the most experienced person available in full PPE in a negative pressure room with every effort being made to achieve a first pass um, first attempt intubation with no positive pressure until the cuff is inflated and the circuit is sealed. And so far, again, despite having many people now in critical care, um, we've not seen any nosocomial spread so far. Excellent. So very, very similar to kind of what, what the approach that we've taken here, and it sounds like it kind of mirrors what you guys are doing in Australia. 
Yeah, I, I was just going to ask Colin, we, we, our intubation practice sounds very similar to what Colin just described, and, and we're using um, video laryng laryngoscopes. Yes, we're advocating that, so our intensivists prefer the CMAX, and that's fine, but we prefer things like the GlideScope. But we've said use whatever tool you're most familiar with and most comfortable yeah. with, but do it first time and try and yeah, keep just, as far away as you can. Yeah, and um, yes, we had to upskill because no, the average emergency physician is very good at direct laryngoscopy and can get yeah. anything in, and we very rarely used um, extra aids yeah. uh, previously, and we've all had to train up into into using GlideScopes or similar. Yeah, I mean, I, I must, I must um, confess, I mean, there, there were about five of us in our department out of 12, 13, 14 specialists who are GlideScope enthusiasts, mm. and we were very comfortable with it. There was another couple who prefer the CMAX, but our intensivists are very much CMAX people, but um, yeah. we've tried to upskill the other guys. But generally, we've been in a situation where someone's been around who has been skilled in one or other of those techniques and so far it's been okay um, the biggest issue we've had on a practical level is wearing goggles with glasses or goggles with a face shield and usually we have goggles and a face shield and the change in optics that that leads to if you have to switch to direct laryngoscopy versus video laryngoscopy and certainly, the, the way I am now, my, my own eyesight, I'm getting to that stage where I, I can't see with the, the glasses and I can't see without them. And, <laughs> and um, I'm taking my glasses off. Not, I haven't done a COVID intubation yet, thankfully. But, um, you know, the, if I'm doing any kind of video laryngoscopy now, I'm taking my glasses off because I want to, my, my near vision is such that I need to be able to not have the glasses on. But if I do that, I can't see the monitor. And I use varifocals most of the time, but varifocals put you in a very weird position if you're trying to do something close up. So I think that's one thing I've learned from this is that if you're going to be doing things like um, intubation and laryngoscopy and such like, you need to look at your own personal optics and your own personal dominance of your eyes and whether you, what difference does it make when you put on a set of ski goggles? And then what difference does it make putting a shield on top of that? And it can have quite profound impact on your visual uh, perception, especially when you're looking for that tiny little hole to put the tube into. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Uh, it'll I Casey would be mad at me if I didn't bring up barriers. You know, they were kind of early on uh, here. People were talking about building barriers and using sheets mm. and all kinds of stuff. And and his comment early on was to that sounds like a really bad idea. And now there's some published data that says it's not such a good idea to take a very difficult procedure that now we've Absolutely. made more difficult uh, because we're wearing all this different PPE, we're changing our optics, and then we're going to put a barrier around it yeah. and say, hey, get this done really, really quick, and God help us if we need to go to plan B or plan C Absolutely. or plan D. I think that's exactly yeah. it. You want to make it as straightforward and as familiar as possible. Mm -hmm. And that certainly has worked for us so far. Yeah. Have you guys seen uh, differences? Let's talk about hospital visitor policy. That's a big thing here. And then we're going to morph oh, into yeah. one of the things we've seen in EMS. So we've seen an uptick in our out-of-hospital uh, deaths. So uh, people that were EMS is called and we arrive and they're either uh, uh, 
dead right there or we resuscitate, attempt resuscitation and are not successful. So we've had an uptick in those and we've tried to do an analysis to try to figure out is it, is it disease related or is it um, barriers for or folks frightened to go to the hospital that they're going to catch COVID and they're just staying at home too long. Have you guys seen this in your own services? No, we, we haven't in Melbourne. Um, we, we sort of hear stories that people are leaving their chronic illnesses um, a bit longer. They're not getting uh, maybe their cancers investigated or their heart disease. But again, we're not seeing an increase in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and deaths. Um, when, when things got relaxed a little bit in June, July, the family doctors and other areas of medicine were sort of saying, oh my God, you should have come here six weeks ago because now your cancer's a little bit bigger than it could have been and the operation's going to be a little bit harder. But um, uh, we're not really seeing that. Um, there is a, a larger increase in mental health complaints, um, both people with Axis 1 psychiatric diseases uh, and also the um, uh, people with no previous um, stress or anxiety uh, diseases, uh, and I think that's largely been driven by the financial situation a lot of people are in, um, and um, but again, hasn't translated into um, more mortality, I don't believe um, and you you touched on the visitor policy um, we have again been very strict from March it then got a little bit relaxed again in June and now has come back as a very strict visitor policy so within the emergency department um, you can settle a person in for a, a minimum of one one visitor per patient for the first hour only or indeed for the last hour of life um, only. Um, and again, with children under 16, I think it is, yes, children under 16, um, one parent or, or guardian only, not two guardians and their grandmother and their next door neighbor and the, the myriad of people that used to come in. And that's causing some trouble, um, some very um, stressed people, um, uh, my complaints man, Nathan, who I think you both know, is uh, dealing with many complaints, but um, we're very strict. And across the hospital, it's a um, one person for one hour in the day during a set time period only. Um, and it's actually um, uh, uh, working across the hospital. The ED, it's a little bit trickier. Yeah. Tom, what are you guys doing in Hong Kong? Yeah, that's interesting, Al. I mean, we, we've been even stricter than that. We've just had a no visitor ban. We, we just haven't allowed visitors at all since right since the get go, since January the 25th, we stopped having any inpatient visitors whatsoever. And the only exception to that is end of life and compassionate care. Um, mm. In the ED, we're trying very hard. We haven't got a formal policy on it, but the numbers of kind of hangers on in the ED has dropped dramatically. Because I think partly because relatives themselves and patients for that matter have perceived the ED as a place of risk and um, yes. they, they've, you know, they, they've backed off a bit in terms of what has come up. Certainly in the last few weeks, our numbers have dropped dramatically 
for the more primary care side of things. We're still seeing the, the seriously ill. Um, I don't think we've seen what you're describing though, Rob. We've not seen an excess of out-of-hostel arrests or mortality. We, we had one morning the other day where we had three deaths in quick succession, but that was notable because it was unusual. Um, and But we've no evidence at all at the moment. And in fact, we did discuss it with this cluster that these are COVID-related. They seem to be um, you know, kind of standard out-of-hostel um, events. Yeah, so from that point of view, we're not seeing it, but our numbers are small relative to yours, so it may just be a function of numbers. Yeah, ours are across the board, our EDs, um, they ticked back up um, here about a week or two, two weeks ago, but before then, they were across the board from the beginning of this thing till, you know, early August down 20, 30% ED yeah. volume. So we're still seeing the critical cases. Uh, but not so much of the of the chronic cases that we're we're used to in ED and managing. Uh, yeah, and as far we, as we, like we, 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 we dropped down. Go on, sorry, Colin. Go on. No, no, go on. We we dropped we dropped down to fifty percent. So through May and early June, we were only seeing half of our usual presentation numbers. We then went back to probably ninety percent pre-COVID. Um, in early July, and now the first couple of weeks of August, we've again drifted back to probably 60, 70% of our pre-COVID numbers. Mm -hmm. So the first two weeks of March were actually our busiest we've ever had. Um, and we're probably running at about 70, 75% of those presentation numbers. Um, and a lot, of it's, a lot of it's our pediatric group. Um, they're not calling out of trees because they're not allowed to climb up a tree because it's five kilometres from their house. Or like that. <laughs> no. But, but yeah, you know, the kids aren't doing kids' injuries. There's no community sport, so the local footy teams are all shut down. Local netball, basketball, tennis clubs are all shut down. So people aren't hurting themselves. Um, and as I alluded to before, the, the older end aren't getting sick because they're not allowed to see their grandchildren and they're not getting the simple colds and flu-like illnesses and which trigger their other problems. So that's our perception. We're still getting the top end of town, the, the STEMIs and, um, and the like, um, and airways disease, which is largely COVID-instigated airways disease. Um, and uh, it's, it's had a positive impact on our total presentation numbers. But, it, but that has then given us the time to train everybody up in using glide scopes and PPE and, and the like. Um, so it's been, we've been busier because we're going through on the job training, if you like, um, and, uh, and devising ways of um, doing things that we haven't done before. And we talked about it just a little bit before, but you know, simple things like um, uh, sedating someone to reduce a collie's fracture, for example, we don't do that anymore. And, my, my younger consultants were up in arms suggesting, well, what on earth do we do? So we reinvented something that I haven't done for nearly 30 years um, when Colin and I worked together in Scotland and um, hematoma blocks and oh, intra-articular yeah. yeah. intra um, shoulder blocks for the dislocated mm. shoulder. And, and I, what I think are, um, well, actually what my junior colleagues thinks you know, something out of Noah's Ark. That, um, <laughs> yeah, you dusted it off the Ark, Doctor. We brought back. Yeah. yeah. So we brought back some old, old, old school stuff that um, 
there's another, um, uh, I'd say, late middle-aged, like I am, consultant with me, and he is just loving it, that the fact that we're doing these old-world things. Fantastic, fantastic. It's, it's, all, it's always nice to be able to show off an old trick, isn't it? So to talk about doing a beers block and everybody just wants to know what kind of beer? Absolutely, yeah. that's right. That's right. right. No, I mean, your, I your, experience, your experience mirrors ours as well. We've had a kind of biphasic hit in that our numbers dropped off massively at the beginning down about 30, 35%, but then they bounced right back up again in May and June, and we've dropped off again recently with yeah. this third wave. The, 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 we had a lot, though, of people coming for testing, especially as we had a couple of local housing estates were affected. So at one point, we had 70-odd patients pitching up in a single day to get tested, and that put huge strain on our sure. service. Yeah. And, and because the bed, we, we still admit every patient with COVID in Hong Kong. At the moment, our bed state can just about cope with that as a way of isolating people as much as anything. But to test them, we've ended up putting a, about half a dozen tents out in the ambulance bay so that when people get tested, they can stay there until we have a result and we can safely release them if they're negative. So we've had to be a little more kind of inventive in that respect as well, just to give us more physical capacity and spacing to keep these relatively low risk, but still suspicious patients close by, but not affecting the running of the department too much. What, what's your turnaround time on a, on a swab thing? So for a regular swab, we're still looking at about six hours, but we've got a, a, what's called a Gen X system now where we can turn things around in about an hour and a half. The problem with that system is we have a, a, a limit of about 10 tests a day yeah. for the simple reason that the, the global supplies of the cartridges for this device are so tight. There's a limit on what we can do on a daily basis. So the majority of people who are still getting regular tests are looking at six, seven hours. But for a few of them, we can turn them around quickly. But it, it all depends on the demand on the day. Sure. Yeah, yeah very similar in our system here where where it's very difficult to get a, a stat, stat test. And the turnaround times between four and six hours. Depends yeah. on when you order it, what time of night it is, if it's a weekend, exactly. to get it back. Because all the patients that are admitted here... Uh, in the county hospital I work in, have to get a COVID test before they come in, no matter what they're admitted yeah, for. Right, right across Australia, the um, the testing has been taken off site so that get it away from the EDs. It's it's run by our hospitals, but in a um, uh, a clinic that they've seconded down the road. So we we direct people if they just want a screening test down the road. Um, and they're still in my part of the world. They're doing over 400 a day um, of testing, and and um, certainly Melbourne has had a, an incredibly high testing rate. Um, uh, and even in the lull in May and June, they had a campaign of um, uh, of testing anybody in the community just to try and get a background uh, idea of what was going on. Um, but still today, we're only seeing, we're seeing less hospitalisation or the need for hospitalisation rates. I know Colin admits everybody that's that's positive. We don't. Um, we are admitting 6 to 8% of those who are positive. Um, 
and they need it on clinical grounds. And, and still we're only getting 1% into ICU, which is a little mm. bit different, a lot lower numbers than the UK and the Italian experience. Um, and, and that's probably saving us at the moment that um, very few are actually getting to the ICU stage. Um, having said that, you know, we've got, um, I know today we've got nearly, I'm just adding the numbers up, 500, about 500 active cases in my catchment area, if you like. And so I suppose in, in what is it, eight to 14 days, there might be 1% of those needing an ICU bed at my hospital. Um, so we sort of look at the numbers each day and then think ahead 14 days and sure. try to work out where we're at. Yeah, I think Colin made a very good comment earlier that uh, this is this is going to be a marathon and it's it's something that's with us for uh, quite a while. So this is kind of the new normal and we're all going to have to get used to practicing in the new normal. Um, well, yeah, more so I think since um, uh, Auckland in New Zealand has gone 103 or 100, yeah, I think it was 103 days with no one. Yeah. And then I wake up this morning to the early morning news and they've got four cases in the city of Auckland mm. and no idea where it's come from. Um, <laughs> probably learn more as the day goes on, but uh, that's very scary to hear that they've, they've gone so long with nothing and now it's popped up again. I think well, somewhere I mean, else... That's very similar to our experience a few months ago. I mean, we, we at one point were running to about 14, 15 days with zero cases. And then something would just appear, and and you know we we think now some of this is as I mentioned earlier has come from inbound airmen and um, sailors yeah. and such like, but we we don't know for sure. Um, but it's as you say, it's the fact that this just seems to pop out of nowhere. And the big difference between our third wave and our previous events in Hong Kong has really been the fact that. Um, uh, certainly at the beginning of the third wave, about two thirds, half to two thirds of the cases had no obvious connection to other cases. And as time has gone on, that proportion has dropped off and we can link them to other families and work and everything else. But the, the it's the unknowns that really cause me concern because they're the ones that, you you know, where's the reservoir? Where's the Where's the hiding point, if you like, in the community? which we need to control to get on top of that. And that, I think, is where the long-term nature of this this battle is going to be. Sure, couldn't agree more. I think that's a great place to wrap it up, Colin. Guys, uh, great discussion today. I really, really appreciate you get both getting up very early. Dr. Graham, you very early uh, to be on the cast with us uh, and share your perspectives, so the kind of a global perspective of, of how we're responding to this pandemic. Uh, as again, thanks to all the listeners. Uh, leave us a like at where you listen to your podcast. Leave us a review or drop us an email at our email address, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.